1939, the US Army Air Force, it was still called the Army Air Force then, they hadn't become a separate branch. The US Army Air Force in 1939 trained 900 aircraft mechanics. 900 for the entire year. That seems like a lot. But by the end of World War II, six years later, they had trained 700,000 aircraft mechanics. So 900 one year, and then when the war started, by the end of the war, they'd trained 700,000. That's a lot. They went from very few aeroplanes and very few mechanics to a whole heap of aeroplanes and a whole heap of mechanics. What they found when they started the war, they would find people who would come, they'd volunteer or be conscripted to join the Air Force, and they would say to the men, what did you used to do in civilian life? And then they'd try and find them a job appropriate to what they had done before. They had lots of people coming and saying, well, I was a mechanic. I used to repair cars. And the Army Air Force said, that's great. We're not letting you anywhere near our aeroplanes. If you used to repair cars in civilian life, we're going to put you in driving the carring pool in the carpool, or you can repair the trucks, you can repair the lorries, you can repair the tanks, but we're not letting mechanics anywhere near our aeroplanes. Why? Because in the 1930s, people who fixed cars used to hit them with hammers until they worked. They would tinker with them and they would fiddle with them and they would bend this and put that and they'd have a go at it until the car ran. And the Air Force said, you know what? We don't want people like that fixing our aircraft. If you want to bang things with a hammer, we'll put you in the carpool you can fix cars because the worst case that will happen is that the car will stop working and you can get out and walk away. Very worst case scenario, your tank stops working and you can jump out and run away. If the engine on an aeroplane stops working because some mechanic hit the wrong thing with a hammer, it tends to fall out of the sky. So who did they train to be their mechanics? They trained accountants. And clerks, this is a true story. If you came and said, when they said to you, what did you do in civilian life? If you said, well, I was a bookkeeper in a store or I was an accountant, they'd say, excellent, you are now a mechanic. Because the Air Force knew they could teach an accountant to swing, a, uh, to turn a thing and to undo a bolt and to fix an engine, but it was really, really hard to teach a mechanic to read an instruction manual and to do as he was told. Really, really hard. And so we have this expression, it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. The American Air Force realized this, and so they trained clerks and accountants to be mechanics, and they left mechanics to fiddle with cars. What's that got to do with our passage? We'll find out in a moment. My name's David, by the way. If you're visiting with us, I'm the pastor here. If you haven't got a copy of our sermon notes, please put your hand up. Someone will bring you our sermon notes. No, not you, Beck. You've done enough this morning. Who else can help? <laughs> Put your hand up if you'd like a copy of the notes. We're working our way through Mark's gospel, uh, a different chunk each week, and we're learning more and more about Jesus, who he is, what he represents to the people he spoke to. Here in Mark chapter 2, some people came and asked Jesus a question. Now, first of all, how fantastic is it that people can ask Jesus a question? People in his day asked him questions. We can ask him questions today. So first of all, let's be encouraged by that. They came to Jesus and they said, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Fasting was a big deal in those days. In the Old Testament law, it's only commanded once to fast. 
On the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people were commanded once in the Old Covenant to fast, once a year. But the Pharisees thought, you know, we can do better than that. And so the Pharisees fasted twice a week, we're told in the Gospels. The Pharisees fast twice a week. And in fact, they would sort of dust their face with white, um, white dust to sort of show that they were in, in this fasting mood so that everyone knew, I'm fasting, don't offer me cake today. And they made a big deal of this. And the Jewish people in those days started more and more to fast regularly. And they would fast to remember often the terrible things that had happened in the past. So the destruction of the temple in 579 BC. They would fast on the anniversary of that every year to remind themselves, this is the day our temple was destroyed. And here in this passage, we also read that John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, are also fasting at this time. John the Baptist, we know, is in prison at this point. He hasn't been killed yet. We won't get to that till chapter 6. But John the Baptist has been put in prison, which is what has sparked Jesus' ministry. So we're not sure why John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. Maybe they're fasting in order to show how sad they are that their master is in prison. Uh, they want their, maybe they're praying to God, and so they're fasting that John the Baptist will be released. And so these two groups who are sort of opposites to each other, John's disciples and the Pharisees, are both fasting at the same time. And someone comes and says to Jesus, why is it that your disciples aren't fasting? Why is it that your disciples aren't fasting? Remember that last week we talked about people coming to Jesus, to Jesus' disciples and criticizing Jesus. Last week in Levi's house, they came to the disciples and said, why is your master eating with sinners? That didn't work so well. So this week, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, your disciples are pretty lousy. They couldn't, get to, they couldn't get to Jesus through the disciples, so now they're trying to get the disciples through Jesus, trying to cause this argument. These disciples are pretty lousy, they're saying, and it's a repeated refrain in this verse, John's disciples. Why is the disciples? The disciples, but your, your disciples aren't. They're criticizing Jesus by criticizing his disciples. They're not yet ready to criticize Jesus openly. That'll come in a few chapters' time. And they're not really ready to dismiss him as being bad or evil. They're trying to shape him. They're trying to get him on board on their side by pointing out to him that his disciples aren't exactly the thing. Your disciples stink, they're saying to Jesus. These guys are lousy. They don't even fast at the right time. They're not doing the right thing. They're not helping you enough. They're not doing what they should do. These are lousy followers. Because remember that Jesus called the fishermen. And then last week we read the story of him calling Levi, the tax collector. And so the people around are looking at Jesus going, we thought Jesus was this great guy, but he's hanging out with these really lousy disciples. Your disciples stink, they say. Why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they doing these things? And Jesus gives them an answer. Now, isn't that wonderful? They come with a question to Jesus, and Jesus answers the question. So many times we come to God with a question, and he always answers. Is that right? Some people say yes, some people say no. Sometimes his answer is yes, sometimes his answer is no, sometimes his answer is wait, sometimes his answer is something that doesn't make any sense at all. And that's what we're talking about this morning, an answer in parables. He tells a series of little stories, really sharp, memorable stories. So a parable is just a simple story with a point. It's got to have a point, otherwise it's not a parable. And it's designed to make the listener both think and remember. If Jesus had just said, this is the reason why they don't fast, 
No one would have remembered that. But because Jesus gives three simple stories or three simple examples, these stories stick with us even today. He gives this answer in parables, a simple story with a point designed to make the listener think and remember. And in Mark chapter 4, which we'll get to in a few months' time, Jesus teaches some more parables, and Mark records some of his parables. And in the midst of that, Jesus explains why he's telling them these parables. And Jesus' explanation, we'll jump ahead a few weeks, in Mark chapter 4, the 12 come to him and they say, what's with these parables? Why are you always telling these parables? And Jesus said to them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to them, the arrows on the outside, everything is said in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from the Old Testament. Old Testament. He says, they're given in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And if you're anything like me, you look at that answer and go, that doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. Jesus is using a parable to explain why he tells parables. He's making us think. Why would Isaiah have written that long ago? And why is Jesus saying it today? And we can talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to Mark chapter 4. But the point he's saying is, I want people to really think about what I'm saying. Not just take it on the surface level, but go deeper. I want people to really investigate what it is that I'm saying. Not just listening. I want them to perceive. I don't want them just to hear, but also to understand. Otherwise, they turn with their, their sins and be, turn and be forgiven. He's talking about the reality that if it was just a, a surface-level gospel, well, then all you get is surface-level Christians. But if you're going to, willing to go deep into these things of Jesus and really examine them and think about them and pray about them and go to Jesus saying, Jesus, I don't understand, then you're much more likely to get an answer. That's a very short answer to why he gives them parables They're memorable, they make us think, and they also sort of are a way of saying, well, who's really serious about this message, and who's just here for the free bread? Who's really here to meet the Messiah, and who's just here to get their headache taken away? Who's really here to encounter God, and who just wants to look good? That's the purpose of the parables. Who's willing to go deep with Jesus? He uses three parables, and we had the picture up during the kids' time. Uh, I didn't draw this in case you think I'm that talented. Uh, But here we have the bridegroom fasting. We have the cloth stretching. We have the wine bag bursting. Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. And Jesus introduces us here to a picture. Oh, I need to go back a second. Sorry. When we're talking about parables, we need to be careful to always remember that not everything in the parable is of most importance. The point of the story is to get to the point of the story. Sometimes we get obsessed with the little details of the parables. That's not what Jesus is about. If you get obsessed with why are there three gifts instead of two and one gift and ten and all those different parables and why, that's not what it's about. The point of the parable is the point of the parable. Does that make sense? Sometimes Christians get obsessed with the little details. But here, Jesus is talking about the bridegroom, this picture of this man on his way to his wedding or at his wedding, 
And he's saying, how can the guests of this bridegroom fast while he's with them? Jesus is talking about himself here. He is the bridegroom. He is the man on his way to the wedding. He is the one with whom people celebrate and get excited. And in John chapter 3, John the Baptist talks about Jesus as the bridegroom. And I've got a longer passage there, but just one verse here this morning. In John chapter 3, some people come to some of the disciples of John before he gets put in prison, come to John and say, Jesus is more popular than you. He's doing better than you. And John the Baptist says this in other things. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. So John the Baptist says, I'm just the friend. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the real one. And this picture of the bridegroom is repeated throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, uh, Hosea, sorry, and other books as well. There's pictures of this bridegroom, this person who's coming for this wonderful day, a day of celebration. And so Jesus says, that's me. I'm the bridegroom. He says, there's a party going on right here, a celebration. You can't fast while you're with me. I'm too much fun, says Jesus. When you're with Jesus, there's no need to fast. He's right there. But then he adds a second half to this parable and he says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. If you've got your own Bible there, highlight that line because this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we have a picture that the bridegroom will be taken away, that Jesus won't be with his disciples and it won't all be roses, bed of roses for all time. Something's going to happen in the future, and on that day they will fast. It's a picture of Jesus coming to the crucifixion. This is the first hint of that in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, this party is great because you're with the bridegroom, so you can't, they can't fast right now. This is his simple answer. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Because they're with the bridegroom. That's why they're not fasting. They're with me. But a day will come when I'm taken away, and then they'll fast. And then he tells another little parable to make the same point again, the parable of the new cloth and the old cloth. He says, no one shows, sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And this is just something that makes practical sense. If you've got an old jacket you don't, and it's worn and it's got a hole in it, you don't patch it with a new piece of cloth. The new piece of cloth will shrink and make the tear worse. And so Jesus says, there's a point here. There's a new way of doing things and there's an old way of doing things. And when we mix the two together, it ruins them both. And so he goes on and tells another parable with the same point, the point of the wineskins. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. As I said in the kids' time, these wineskins were one use only. You put the, put the juice in, you let it hang for a while while it ferments. As it ferments, it expands and expands the bag that it's in and, and stretches the leather of the, the case that they would keep their wine in, and when it was ready, you'd pour it out. And if you tried to use that same stretched wine skin again, the wine would ferment and expand, and it would burst. And Jesus says they'd both burst and be ruined. He says there's something new here, and it can't be mixed with something old. If you mix the old and the new together, you'll ruin them both. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So these are the parables that Jesus is telling. These are the parables he's telling. The parable of the bridegroom, the parable of the cloth, 
the parable of the new wine. The picture there to remind us of what the parables are about. So remember, a parable is a simple story with a point. So what's the point of these parables? What's the point of these stories that Jesus is telling? Well, there's probably two possible answers. And the first one is this. New disciples are not like the old disciples. Jesus, remember at the beginning, Jesus has been criticized for his disciples not doing what the other disciples did. And so Jesus says to them, Jesus says to them, well, my disciples aren't like the disciples of John the Baptist or the disciples of, of the Pharisees. I've got a new set of disciples, a new set of people who are doing things in a new way. And this is why I told the story about the American Air Force. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. If you've got someone who's been trained by the Pharisees or even chained by John the Baptist, Jesus says they're already stuck in their ways. They're going to hit the aircraft engine with a hammer, and I don't want them to do that. I want a clean slate, says Jesus. I want to teach my disciples in a new way. And remember that Jesus has called some interesting disciples. He called the fishermen by the side of the lake. He called the two sets of brothers. And in the story we read last week, he's called Levi, the tax collector. He's called some people who in the eyes of the world are pretty lousy, and Jesus says, that's good. I'll teach them what they need to know. I'll show them what they need to do. They don't come into this with preconceived ideas. I'm showing them how to be this new kind of disciple. The new disciples are not like the old. And we remember last week we read Jesus saying famously, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus says, I've come to pick those people who look worst in the eyes of the world so that they look good in the eyes of the world once I'm finished with them. I'm going to transform these people. I'm going to change them. He picked some real doozies, did Jesus. Eleven of the twelve of them turned out okay. And that's not bad odds. He picked some real doozies. But by hanging out with Jesus, by walking with Jesus, by going with Jesus, they had their lives transformed. So new disciples are not like the old. But of course, for us as Christians, we often look at this and we think, actually, there's a deeper meaning here or a further meaning to this, which is the one we talk about the most, which is the idea that this teaching of the kingdom of God is not compatible with the old religion, the old way of doing things. And sometimes um, people get criticized for saying we should do away with the Old Testament. No, we need the Old Testament if only to tell us how good the New Testament is. The value of the old Jewish law and all its rules and regulations and rituals is great in that it shows us how wonderful the gospel of grace really is. We need them both because that one shows us how great this one is. The Old Testament shows us the context of the new. The old Jewish regulations and the rules and the way that the people of the Old Testament dealt with God shows us how wonderful things are on this side. They provide the context for Jesus and they show us how much better the new covenant is. The teaching of the kingdom of God is not compatible with the old religion. And Jesus goes on and talks about this in so many ways. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say, don't hate your neighbor. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, but I say, don't look at someone with lust in your heart. He says, you've heard it said that if you call someone an idiot, you'll be liable to judgment. But I say, don't even call them a fool. 
Don't be cruel to your brother. In the Old Testament, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, love your enemies and do good for those who hate you. And so Jesus is taking the Old Testament regulations and rules and he's saying, actually, enough of that. Let's go on to the new. Let's go on to the new. What is this kingdom of God that we've been talking about for so many weeks? What is this message? His message to them is the same as it's been for all we've read through Mark's gospel. Let's read together, please, the words. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news of Jesus is that the old ways of doing things are in an end. We no longer have to keep this rule to impress God or keep this rule to impress God or fast this many times to impress God. And if I say my prayers enough times, God will love me. And if I work hard enough and if I shine my shoes enough, gee, God will love me. That's the old way of thinking. Jesus says, God loves you. His kingdom is near. If you just turn away from your sin and believe, you can experience this new kingdom. That way is all about what I do. I do this, I do that, I do the other. Jesus' way is all about what Jesus has done. He's done it all. And because he's done it all, we then go on to live holy lives. And our picture that reminds us of these things. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the good news. This is not just the gospel for beginning Christians. This is the gospel for ongoing Christians. How can I grow deeper in my faith? Repent and believe. What about when I'm 80 years old? What should I do then? You should repent and believe. What should I do when I'm six? Repent and believe. This is how Christians grow. We grow by repenting and turning away from those things we know are wrong and trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Are there any questions here this morning before we carry on? Any questions this morning? No? Okay. If you have any questions, my email address is there. My phone number is there. The question that came to me as I read this is, well, then should Christians fast? If Jesus says... Should we or should we not? And if so, how should we fast? And there's different uh, things to that because Jesus says, you know, if you've got the bridegroom with you, you don't need to fast. And that's the verse it says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. So is Jesus talking only about his first century disciples or is he talking about us, his 21st century disciples? And when he says, and on that day, does he mean on the day he's arrested and crucified, they'll go without food? Or is it more than that? That when we feel that Jesus is absent from our lives or when we lose him or when, he, when we can't hear his voice anymore, then maybe we should fast. Is there a deeper meaning to this? And this is one of the dangers of parables that people take them either too literally or not literally enough and take the little details and exaggerate them. So perhaps the answer to this question is not found specifically in this passage, but instead in our faith fingers, which we've been talking about for a number of weeks now, the ways we connect with God Privately, one-on-one with God, with a trusted friend who we can go deep with, in a small group with whom we can study the word and hold each other accountable and be friends, on mission when we go and do things and point people to Jesus and point people to what he's done, and the importance of church, 
These are five main ways in which people can grow in their faith. And Jesus talks about fasting and the faith fingers. He talks about it in a private context. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives this great teaching on what we should do. He says to his disciples, he says to you and me, when you fast, do not like, look somber as the hypocrites do. Who are the hypocrites? The Pharisees. Because they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Remember I talked about how the Pharisees used to whiten their faces with dust to show as if they were dead to make it look like they've really seriously been fasting. Oh, look, I'm so pale. Oh, oh, I love God so much. I'm so pale. I'm going to die. They were exaggerating. Jesus is calling them hypocrites. He says, don't do that. Don't let anybody else know you're fasting. Truly, I tell you, those guys have received their reward in full. They're doing it just to show off to people. But Jesus says, but when you fast, not if, when, when you, my disciples fast, he says, put oil on your head and wash your face, that is, you know, comb your hair, wash your hair, don't, don't, look, don't look rough, shave your face, you know, look clean, you know, put on sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, do it so that no one knows. So it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So should Christians fast? And if so, how? Jesus says, yes, and do it privately. It's between you and God. Sometimes we have national days of fasting and, and the church is called to national days of repentance and there are places in other places in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you're going to cast out this impure spirit, you're going to need prayer and fasting. And it's prayer and fasting, by the way, not complaining with a hunger strike. Prayer and fasting is, is an important way of getting in touch with God, an important way of coming close to him. But for Christians, when we fast, when we give things up, we should do it in such a way, Jesus says, that no one even notices, but only God. Sometimes we, um, what is the purpose of fasting? What is it about? It's about that when I give up food for a week, and my, or a week, that's never happened and never going to happen, just quietly. When I give up food for the day, I'm going to concentrate on praying and talking to God. Every time my stomach rumbles, that's a reminder to me. I need to go back and pray. My body's reminding me I need to pray. Sometimes for us in our modern world, we get addicted to our technology. And there's a little part of our brain, a little chemical drop in our brain saying, look at your phone. Look at your phone. I wonder what's on TV. All those little chemical drops in your brain. If we fast from those things, every time your brain says, I wonder what's happening on Facebook, we go, I thank you, Lord God, that I do not need to look at Facebook. And that's what fasting is in our modern context. It doesn't just mean giving up food. It can mean giving up the internet, giving up our phones, giving up television, giving up things that are otherwise good, the Bible does talk, are there any children in the room? The Bible does talk about abstaining from sexual relations. Paul talks about this. If you're going to abstain from sexual relations, you're going to fast from that. Some of us do that automatically um, or by default. But if you're going to, he says, you know, if you're going to do it, do it for a little while so you can concentrate on praying to God. But not forever. You've got to look after each other. Husbands and wives, he's talking about there. So it's fasting not just from food but from other things. So that reminds us to concentrate on God. Jesus talked in there about there'll be a day when, when 
when I'll be taken away and people won't see him anymore. While Jesus is close to you and you feel his presence, you probably don't need to fast. But on those days where we get distracted by the world, we get caught up in what's going on around us, or we get involved in the toilet paper panics or whatever else is going around us, and we lose sight of Jesus, that's when Jesus says, actually, come back fast, concentrate on me, do what you need to do to come close to me. It's not Jesus who's wandered off, it's us who've wandered off. We need to remind ourselves and come back to him. What is our application from this little passage this morning? Only a few verses, but so much in these verses this morning. First of all, if you've got questions, ask them. We don't know the motivation for these people coming to Jesus. Were they really trying to criticize his disciples? Were they really trying to have a go at Jesus? We often read that into it because there's a lot of conflict here, but it doesn't say why they asked the questions. They came to Jesus, they asked their questions, and Jesus gave them an answer. If you've got questions, ask them. Ask them of Jesus. Ask them of other Christians. Ask your questions. Are you at the party? Are you with the bridegroom? Or have you lost him? If you're at the party, you probably don't need to fast. If you've lost him, if he's, if he's turned left and you've turned right and you don't know where Jesus is anymore, then you need to do whatever's necessary to repent and to believe and to come back into relationship with him. And if that involves fasting, Jesus tells us how to do that. Are you trying to put new wine in old cloths? Or are you trying to sew new cloth into old wineskins? Either way, it's not going to work. That's, I twisted that just to make it funny. Uh, but no one laughed. That's fine. If you're trying to put new wine in the old, old wineskins, that's not going to work. You may as well put it into the old garment. It's not going to work. Try and mix Moses with Jesus, you're going to destroy them both. You're going to mix the Ten Commandments with the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, not going to work really well. Jesus says, actually, my disciples need to live the new kingdom way. Live the new kingdom way. Live my way. And so he says to his disciples, you can read it in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. The blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he goes on from there to lay out how the citizens of the kingdom of God should live. I urge you this week, make time to read through Matthew 5, 6 and 7 and ask yourself the question, am I living the Jesus way? Am I living the way Jesus wants me to live? A little reflection song that I've chosen this morning doesn't relate specifically to this passage. Uh, Jesus doesn't give this new command till much, much later in his ministry, the new commandment to love one another as he has loved us. But really this sums up the commandments of Jesus, his new way of doing things, his new wine, his new cloth, the party the bridegroom's at. It's his instruction to us to love one another as he has loved us. And as we read through Matthew 5, 6 and 7, we'll hear it again and again, Jesus saying, Love the way God loves. Love the way God loves. And then you'll be perfect. Let's pray. Let's sing and then pray. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another 
As I have loved you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you love me even when I sing out of tune. Father God, I thank you that you love us even when we're not perfect and we're not right. Father God, I thank you that you've done everything necessary for us to come into your kingdom. Father God, help us to repent and believe and follow Jesus. Father God, this morning I pray if there's anyone here who's still trusting in the way of the Pharisees, the way of the Old Testament, trying to earn their way into heaven, Father God, speak to them right now by your Holy Spirit. Convict, rebuke, comfort, and call them closer to you. Father God, for the rest of us who want to live in a way that pleases you, help us to live in response to your good news. Help us to love one another. Help us to serve you. and Help us not to criticize your disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.